So I, I never know what Sylvia has spoken about or how recently, if, uh, if she has, but um, has she talked about the eight worldly conditions here? Doesn't sound like a, a recent topic anyway. Okay. Well, I'm going to talk about two of them uh, today. Mm. The eight worldly conditions, you might be familiar with this list. <clears throat> Sex and money? <laughs> Sex and money? No, not, not quite. It's definitely a worldly condition, but not in this Buddhist list anyway. Uh, the eight worldly conditions that we're all subject to and um, get tossed by until we are really free. Pleasure and pain, loss and gain, fame and shame, and praise and blame. Mm. Those are the things that uh, drive many of us either in avoidance or in grasping after one of those uh, two in each pair. <clears throat> and the Buddha said if you can see how they operate and understand the possibility of not being caught up by them, uh, then this is, is really an indication of, of deep equanimity and, uh, and presence and wisdom. <clears throat> what I wanted to talk about today particularly is praise and blame. <clears throat> Just uh, as we go into it, look in your own life, maybe in recent times, weeks or, or months or even days, you know, if you've been on the receiving end of praise, when that comes to you, how do you take it in? What's your relationship to it? Does it inspire you? Does it make you squirm? Does it give you a puffed out chest, um, what's your relationship to it when somebody says, fabulous job, I just love the way you, whatever it is. How do you handle that? How do you receive that? And what does it do inside of you as well? Because whatever comes outside is, uh, is one component of the of the process, what goes on inside um, is something quite, quite different, perhaps. And let's take a look on the other side. If you've been on the receiving end of blame in recent times, your relationship if you're in a primary uh, partnership or at work or something that you've done that's upset somebody and they've let you know about it 
and you felt either attacked or judged or blamed, what was that experience like? What did you, how did you respond outwardly? And how did it feel inwardly? What was its effect on you? And of course, besides being on the receiving end, sometimes we are transmitters as well. When you give praise or you give blame, either one in recent times, just reflect on how it is when you praise somebody. If it's if there's a motive involved, if it just comes spontaneously, does it come easily? Does it come sincerely? How is it received? Sometimes you can come from the purest possible intention and somebody has a difficult time with receiving praise. And how does that feel when you are the sender? And on the other end, when you've got some truth to share with somebody, to clear with them, how do you share it? Is there blame? Is there attack? Is there judgment? Is there kind of getting it in just, just so you know how to press that button? Not to judge yourself for it, but just to understand this process and, and how we relate to it, both on the, on the sending end has a lot to do with how we relate to it on the receiving end, too. <clears throat> so maybe that'll give you a little bit of um, a personal reflection as we explore this. Let's see. I want to start by reading this uh, famous passage from from the Buddha. This is from the Dhammapada. Look how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. Live with such thoughts and you live in hate. Look how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. Abandon such thoughts and live in love. In this world, hatred is, has never yet been dispelled by hatred. Only love dispels hatred. This is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. You too shall pass away. Knowing this, how can you quarrel? So the Buddha says, if you really want to come to a sense of peace and happiness inside, don't look outside for the problem. The source of suffering as well as happiness is usually found inside. And we can um, easily feel justifi justifiably wronged or um, uh, misunderstood, and that sometimes is the case where people do unskillful things because they don't understand. It's not to say that that doesn't happen. It happens all the time. But how we deal with it, 
is really um, within our power to create either more contraction or pain or um, a greater degree of openness and understanding and, and waking up. <clears throat> I have mentioned from time to time and uh, just had these these guys here uh, who teach uh, happiness in this book on happiness um, where they uh, interviewed many uh, ha people who are identified as extremely happy and one of the nine choices in uh, the common denominators of these people is what uh, these authors uh, Rick Foster and Greg Hicks called accountability which is, as they define it, the choice to create the life you want to live to assume full personal responsibility for your actions, thoughts, and feelings, and the emphatic refusal to blame others for your own unhappiness. <clears throat> That's a common denominator of people who really have a, a genuine sense of happiness inside, not to look outside of yourself. There's a couple of quotes. They've got lots of beautiful quotes here from Erica Zhang. Take your life in your own hands and what happens? A terrible thing. No one to blame. <laughs> one more. And Helen Keller. Self-pity is our worst enemy and if we yield to it, we can never do anything wise in this world from Helen Keller. So it's really an, an important and common experience that we need to, uh, to work with. And everybody is subject to it and needs to work wisely with it. No matter how good you are, no matter how saintly you are, no matter how wise you are, um, sooner or later you have to deal with this. There's a story from the time of the Buddha. You know, a number of times the Buddha was tried, uh, was, uh, there was an attempt to discredit the Buddha. Many, many times people would get jealous. Other teachers would get jealous. His cousin tried to kill him a few times, uh, Devadatta. Um, and uh, that's part of the package. I mean, look look at, uh, at Jesus in, in, uh, in the Christian uh, religion. There's this one story about the Buddha where um, these, uh, he came to this town and they were spreading all kinds of rumors about him that he got uh, a woman pregnant and uh, they made her uh, you know, say, yes, yes, my pregnancy is from the Buddha. And, uh, a number of other really nasty rumors and the people were quite upset and were um, uh, were giving a very hard time and threatened to um, uh, to make life miserable for the monastics as well as the Buddha and Ananda his attendant was very worried and concerned and he said to uh, to the Buddha um, do you, don't you think we should move on? You know, maybe we should go to another, another village. And the Buddha said, um, 
no, well, what, what do you think would happen if we went to another village and suppose they, they spread some rumors uh, about me and us? What, which, what will we do then? And he said, well, we could move on again. And he said, no, Ananda, no, Ananda, we just stay here and know the truth within ourselves, and the truth will come out sooner or later. And then he said this line, which I've thought of many times. He says, um, those who speak much are blamed. Those who speak little are blamed. Those who remain silent are blamed. In this world, no one escapes from blame. It's a comfort, isn't it? You know? You've got a lot of good company. <clears throat> it becomes particularly um, unsettling the more we're attached to our image and how we hope others perceive us, the more we're going to be subject to praise and blame, both hankering after praise and, and avoiding blame. So much gets invested in who we are and what we'd like to project. I was a, a school teacher for a number of years in, uh, in New York City and then out here for a couple of years, about 10 years in New York. And um, it, was, it was really clear that the children, and if you ever work with children, especially in, in school situation, in, a, in a, a group situation, the most important thing that it seemed to me uh, was, on the, uh, was on kids' minds were, was not to look like a fool. Much more than, than being the star is it was an avoidance of making a mistake and having people say, oh, look at that fool. It's scary. It's, there's a great fear that we have of being wrong. And also, it makes us, it's actually one thing that brings a lot of conformity in our culture or socializing in our culture because we don't want to look out of the norm, many of us. Not all of us, and some people have the courage to just more and more be themselves and, uh, and let people deal with it, whatever, however they are. But um, you see this in subtle ways, in not-so-subtle ways. I remember one, one time in my, uh, in my life, it was in my 20s, and I was in this spiritual scene in, in New York, um, and there was a whole uh, sadhana, a whole... Uh, course of, of practice that you did. This is uh, I was studying uh, with Ramdas in this small scene in New York, and one of the one of the uh, pieces of uh, of practice was celibacy. And so for about a year I was celibate, right? And um, the first few months, it was really interesting to to see as I'd go out, before I'd go out and go out into the street, I'd, you know, be standing there in the mirror, you know, trying to have the best possible appearance I could, as I had most of my life, 
And I could see myself kind of preening so that maybe as I walked out, you know, somebody would, a, a pretty girl, you know, would look at me and or pass say, oh, there's a good looking guy, you know. Now, I was celibate by this time, right? There was no payoff, but I was still kind of, you know, in that mode of maybe I could get a little bit of, of praise. Oh, I'm okay. Oh, they approve of me. And this went on for like, you know, four or five months or so until I said, you know, okay, it's nice to look presentable, but what's my motivation? What's my, my hook in there? And when I, when I finally got that there was going to be no payoff, I wasn't going to meet anybody, and nothing was going to come of it, you know, it took a whole um, level of extra energy off of my actions, and I just kind of settled into just being myself without going for any kind of, you know, possible approval leading to something. Interestingly enough, when I did that, when I was not trying to be attractive or appealing and I just started relating to people just as people, women, men, whatever, all of a sudden I became attractive to you know, people because I didn't want anything from them. You know, and that's often how, how it works. On retreats, I, I've mentioned this uh, in retreat stories. On one retreat, I'd, uh, I would just, I would do the the walking meditation, I'd be all by myself and, and really getting into it and slow walking, lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing, and really, really getting into the, the, the grace and the beauty of the practice when uh, sometimes I like to go slowly. And I'd be all by myself and really enjoying it. And all of a sudden, somebody else would come into the room and I'd have a whole different reason for walking, you know, <laughs> presentation. And I started to use the label after a while, lifting, moving, looking good, looking good. <laughs> lifting, moving, looking good, looking good, you know. After a while, I was using looking good more than, more than the walking. And again, it was both humbling and very freeing to see those subtle motives that, that I, would get for a little bit of approval. I'm okay. I'm really okay. <clears throat> How much does it drive you? What are the intentions? What, what payoff might you have? What kind of hook at the end of your actions? Either for approval and acceptance or for uh, imputing blame outside of yourself. Really, when uh, the Buddha talks about renunciation, you know, this is one of the, the valued practices. One, one way of thinking of renunciation is letting go of those hooks behind our actions. Where there's, you know, there's not any extra baggage you're just naturally doing what you do without an ulterior motive. It's tremendously freeing. That is a great renunciation and uh, the joy is liberating to let go of those motives. 
because you know people can feel it anyway you can you can sense when somebody is kind of making a presentation and and wanting to you know appear a little bit more than who they are or appear okay and win your approval that in itself keeps you from really being open and na as natural uh, to them as if they're just themselves. It's very impressive when someone is just themselves and not wanting anything from you, including approval. So there's this paradox that, that, that happens. The more you want it, the more you want that praise, the less impressive you are and the more resistance. The less you want it, the less you're trying to impress and you're just being yourself becomes very impressive. Okay. So, <clears throat> also when you're looking outside of yourself for praise or you're uh, trying to avoid blame, but we'll just stay with praise for a little while, what you do is you give away your power because then your happiness and sense of ease and peace is dependent on somebody else's reaction. Just imagine what it would be like to not have that as a motivation. I, I remember um, being with this really wonderful Indian uh, teacher, Punjaji, W.H. Punja, in sometimes called Papaji. There's some books that have been uh, written about him. Um, and uh, when I went to spend time, this is in 1990, he has a way, or had a way, he's passed away. He has a, had a way of opening up your heart so that fear was not as operative. And it was uh, those who were touched in that way with him had this uh, a very common experience of just having fear go away. And Sylvia, actually, Sylvia and I uh, uh, went together and uh, we had a great time and Seymour, her husband, too. Um, and uh, she had definitely, she was touched a lot by being around Punjaji. And when her fear was not operative, she noticed that worry disappeared for a while. And she said, it is, it's, it's, I have this on videotape, she said, would say to him, you know, I'm, I'm looking for worry and I can't find it, you know. <laughs> that was how it affected her. And for me, when that there was that absence of fear, I noticed this, also this absence of trying to figure out either consciously or unconsciously what other people wanted from me. It just wasn't there and it took me a little while to figure out why I was so much lighter, you know, and then I realized, oh, there's not this an iota of 
of a, of a wondering how I'm coming off, you know, what I can do to please somebody or what I can do to make it better or to, to, to fix them or, you know, it was like completely gone and it was, um, the word enlightenment, it wasn't quite enlightenment, but it was lightenment. It was much, much lighter. So I also felt this, this power that I hadn't felt on that, in that level before because I wasn't externally referencing my, um, my life. It kind of, oh, it, it made me ask, what do I want? That was a unique question. What do I really want? What do I need here? You know? I mean, I would generally get around to that question after unconsciously trying to figure out what everybody else wanted. But coming back or coming to my own sense of self was, uh, was new and powerful. In a way, when you're both looking for, uh, for approval or when you're looking for the problem out there, when that other person is causing you suffering, uh, you create that kind of victim stance. It's a setup for being a victim. Yeah, Rose? Do you have any idea what this guy was either doing or being to actually affect this uh, draining away of fear? What Punjaji was doing yeah, to... That's a whole other story. He he was uh, he had he was living in that space of just being, and was such a powerful transmitter of it, just through a lot of love and through very uh, sometimes very incisive dialogues. But just his energy, kind of, tuned you into a that same kind of energy, and it resonated within you. And at times, people had the experience of seeing that that's who they are as well. So it wasn't just him, it was like he emanated this energy and could remind you who you are. So, so it was an energy phenomenon rather than that he said or did something. Uh, it, was, it was on many levels. Sometimes it was through dialogue, sometimes it was through energy, sometimes it was... Um, you know, through a, another understanding or just opening your heart, you know. And there's people who can do that, you know. I, I don't want it to seem like you need somebody to do that. That's one, that's one path. It can also happen uh, intrapersonally on retreat. And I, I have had those experiences before that time on retreat and since on retreat um, but in, but not in my waking time over such an extended period and just a powerful hit. But we can access those, those places in many different ways. This is just one that, that was striking to me. So as you, uh, as you let go of being a victim, you also let go of um, magnetizing 
people either blaming you or not uh, not fulfilling your your wishes, because the more you're also afraid of being blamed, you know that has a particular effect on on those around you as well. <clears throat> And then there's also uh, blaming yourself. That's a whole other component that many of us have to deal with. And probably for many people, that's the, that's the most challenging one. Oh, why aren't I better at this? Why aren't I more kind? Why aren't I more compassionate? You know, you jerk, you know, when are you going to get it together, you know, or woe is me. And when you get into that kind of blaming, which can be self-judgment or self-pity, when you feel sorry for yourself, or you feel small or young, again, it's a disempowering. It's not seeing that you have what you need to be free. Whereas if instead you see your shortcomings or you see the, the places that you still have to grow, there can be a sense of compassion for where you are and where you, you can grow more. And there's a, instead there can be a feeling of caring for this frightened place inside and that which is caring, when you have compassion for yourself, it means that some aspect of your being cares about some other aspect. And it's the aspect that cares that you can more and more nurture. So it's, it's really um, a very important practice to develop true compassion for yourself because then you start to more and more come from that place of a wise, caring being that can hold that frightened child, usually. And there's a, a strength that comes from that as well. <clears throat> when your actions are based on approval or blame, <clears throat> Generally, it's that you are not quite enough inside. And when you feel that you're not quite enough inside, the truth is you could line six billion people up one after another who come through and say, you're really okay, you're really okay, you're really okay, and it won't be enough. You don't you won't get to the point where you finally get, oh, they say I'm really okay, so I must be really okay, until you feel you're really okay. That's just the way it works. It's, a, it's a, an unquenchable quest. So this is where the empowerment comes that, you're, that you see not to look outside of yourself for wholeness, but to come to terms with it right in here. I, I don't know if I said this uh, uh, when I was here last week about meeting yourself. Did we talk about that? Did we say it? 
You know, if you, if you met somebody who had your taste, somebody who had your sense of humor, somebody who had your take on the world, who really, really got it, who really understood where you were coming from, how would you feel about meeting somebody like that? Love. Love. I'd be ecstatic, wouldn't you? Somebody who really gets it, where you're coming from, your taste, your sense of humor, your understanding of your fears and all that. If you met that person, you'd be, you'd met your best friend. The only problem is when that person is inside of your skin, then somehow, you know, yuck. I don't, you know, why am I this way or am I that way? It's just, you know, uh, Einstein has this expression I love called an optical delusion of consciousness <laughs> that makes it feel that while you're inside, you're not so worthy or good. But if you stepped outside of yourself and you're, you saw somebody like you, there would be tremendous joy and love and kinship and camaraderie. So it's really a practice of kind of stepping outside of your normal take on yourself to see who you really are. <clears throat> and that's what comes when we see through this identification with self. What we do is take ourselves to be a certain way, and then we concretize that. That's our image. That's our self-image. But really, we are much more fluid than any one way that we see in ourselves. We have joy, we have sorrow, we have fear, we have love, we have all parts of ourselves. But when we solidify it into, oh, this is me, and you think of yourself as this fixed being, this noun, instead of thinking of yourself like a verb. You know, just imagine, just relate to yourself as a verb. You are a field of experience, a process. Then when you're relating to yourself as some kind of fixed being that you keep on recreating with the images and the thoughts you have about yourself, then everything gets solidified and you need to try to fix and make better. Rather than seeing yourself as a process, there's an ease and, a, and an openness and a flow that comes from that. This is uh, from Nisargadot, uh, who wrote I Am That, uh, an extraordinary book. If you want to hang out with a being who's free and just get a sense of, of what that consciousness is like, this is, this is the book, I would say, as much as any that I can think of. I am that. He says, it's dialogues. <clears throat> he says, um, You cannot possibly say that you are what you think yourself to be. Your ideas about yourself change from day to day and from moment to moment. Your self-image is the most changeful thing you have. It is utterly vulnerable at the mercy of a passerby. 
a bereavement, the loss of a job, an insult, and your image of yourself, which you call your person, changes deeply. You know what you are, you know what you are, you must, to know what you are, you first must investigate and know what you are not. And to know what you are not, you must watch yourself carefully, rejecting all that does not necessarily go with the basic fact, I am. That is just feeling life coming through you before it becomes an I am this or an I am that. The idea is I am I am born at a given place, at a given time from my parents, and now I'm so-and-so, living at, married to, father of, employed by, and so on, are not inherent in the sense I am. Our usual attitude is of I am this, separate, separate consistently and persevere, separate consistently and perseveringly the I am from this or that, and try to feel what it means to be, to just be, without being this or that. All our habits go against it, and the task of fighting them is long and hard sometimes, but clear understanding helps a lot. The clearer you understand that on the level of the mind you can be described in negative terms only, the quicker you will come to the end of your search and realize your limitless being. So this, really the, uh, the cure, the way to cut through this praise and blame is to see who you really are beyond the package, beyond the self-image, beyond the thoughts you say about yourself or hope that others don't see. And the funny thing is, the more you hope they don't see something, the more you're busy hiding and don't let them see who you really are. That's just the way it works, you know. I hope they don't see how anxious I am, how insecure I am. Guess what gets seen? Whereas if you can let go of that and really get in touch with who you are deeply, the more you allow that to come out. And that's where the practice is really at the heart of this. So again, I don't want to uh, mislead you and think that you've got to come meet some kind of um, dazzling being. The practice shows beyond the story, beyond the drama, beyond the presentation, who you are in the silence of mind. When there's real silence and you're not trying to impress, when you can simply be deeply and you feel life coming through you, there's nothing more that you need. That cuts through praise and blame. And as we practice, we more and more tap into that sense of who we really are. And we become 
expressions of life for other people to be the same. Because when you're around somebody who's just themselves, it allows you to be just yourself. And people will praise you. you know. People will think you're just the greatest. You know. Then you've got to deal with that praise and not identify with it. And there's a whole art in receiving praise, too. Here's a, a, a passage from uh, the Buddha, actually from Ananda. The woman at the well. Have you heard this? This is it's really lovely. Ananda, the attendant of the Buddha, having been sent by the Lord on a mission, passed by a well near a village. And seeing Pakati, a young outcast woman, asked her for water to drink. Pakati, she was an outcast, remember, an untouchable. Pakati said, O oh monk, I am too humbly born to give you water to drink. Do not ask any service of me, lest your holiness be contaminated, for I am of low caste. And Ananda replied, I ask not for caste, but for water. And the woman's heart leaped joyfully, and she gave Ananda water to drink. Ananda thanked her and went away, but she followed him at a distance. Having heard that Ananda was a disciple of the Buddha, the woman went to the Blessed One and said, O Lord, help me and let me live in the place where your disciple Ananda dwells, so that I may see him and minister unto him, for I love Ananda. And the Blessed One understood the emotions of her heart, and he said, Pakati, your heart is full of love, but you do not understand your own sentiments. It is not Ananda that you love, but his kindness. Accept then the kindness you have seen him practice towards you, and practice it towards others. Pakati, though you are born low caste, you will be a model for noble men and noble women. Swerve not from the path of justice and righteousness, and you will outshine the royal glory of queens and kings. So she fell in love with his purity of heart and his kindness. And sometimes people objectify that and say, oh, Yes, I love you, but actually they're falling in love with that purity of heart. It happens sometimes when we encounter the Dharma. When I first heard the teachings, Joseph uh, Goldstein in 1974, and I, I, I've mentioned here before, you know, I was so deeply moved and inspired, uh, and I, I was like, I finally found what I was looking for. But for a while, all I could do was just, you know, gaze at Joseph. Wow, <laughs> he is so cool, you know. He is so wise. He is so... And it took me a while to realize it was just like this. I fell in love with the Dharma, and I had objectified it, and I, and I have deep gratitude for Joseph, and you know, he knows I love him, and he is my main benefactor. But not to mistake that 
love you have for um, out there and for really understanding that it's touching a place inside of you. Now to be on the receiving end of that praise, whether it's in that situation or in something that you do, okay, how can we accept praise graciously? Because it's a very important skill. The, the purity of the receiver in a gift really empowers the merit that the giver gives. So, you know, if, if, you can, if you say to somebody, you know, oh, thank you, I'm so grateful, and they say, oh, no, stop, it's nothing. Don't, you know, stop it, because they feel uncomfortable with it. How does it feel for you? Kind of feel yucky and, oh, gosh, maybe I shouldn't have, that was kind of stupid. But if somebody says, after you say, thank you, I'm so grateful, and they say something like, oh, I'm so glad. Oh, you're most welcome. I'm so glad. There's a kind of joy in your having give that praise. A lot of times it's easier to give praise than to receive it. And so I would really encourage you when somebody expresses their gratitude to take it graciously and rather than identify with it, oh, yes, I am really hot stuff, to feel the wholesomeness of it, to feel the, the, the sincerity of your action that, that touched them and not take ownership of it. If you can do that, then you give them a real gift of, of having given the gift and you receiving it purely. The Buddha talks about thinking about wholesome states, reflecting on wholesome states. He says, uh, I, I think I've mentioned this before, about generosity as one of these different equipments of mind. He says, thinking I'm generous, one gains delight, one gains inspiration in the Dhamma, one uh, gladdens the heart. Now that's, as you do a generous act, he says, think about how good it feels to be generous. He's not saying, aren't I a great guy for being so generous? That's just taking ownership of it and reifying that sense of self. But if instead you can feel the joy of how good it feels as generosity comes through you, then you're feeling it on the way out as well as, as, well as uh, on the way in. Oh yes, this feels so good. And in the same way when somebody says, you have been so helpful and so um, uh, I'm so grateful for you, to take that in and not squirm out of it and just feel good that you've touched somebody without getting a puffed up chest from it and graciously say, oh, I'm so glad, you know, that, that completes the circuit. <clears throat> as far as receiving blame, I'll just mention a few more words and then we'll have discussion. As far as receiving blame, when you're on the receiving end of blame from others, that's a tricky one. It's really hard, isn't it? How can we do that skillfully? The first thing we want to do is put up a barrier and say, no, get away. And 
Understandably, if the energy is really strong and intense, we need to protect ourselves. But beyond the protection, it can be a practice how to skillfully work with that kind of energy coming to you. And I think it starts with trying to understand the other person's reality. Because whatever they're feeling towards you, if they're blaming, there's probably some hurt in there. There's probably some pain. And if you can tune into the pain rather than to what's coming towards you, there's a bit more of a chance of having compassion. Particularly if you can realize what your part in it is, if there's been anything, any piece that you've played that maybe you can wake up to, maybe you can learn from. And if it's quite clear in your heart that you had the best of intentions and were misunderstood, then that's something to take in too and still understand that no one escapes from blame. But it's take, it takes a real honest look to see what in there you, your part might have been in the dance. Anyway, what can I learn from it? And if it's nothing else than learning that people misunderstand and there's a lot of pain that this person is feeling and you've done what you could and then find the nearest exit, as the Dalai Lama says, after you've done everything you could, you know, you know, then that might be the appropriate thing. But if you can listen to the person, I mean, that, that's really uh, the skillful way to go. Let me hear what happened. And just trying to slip into their reality and understand there's a whole different dynamic in the exchange. Ajahn, uh, um, Ajahn Jamnian was here a couple of, uh, uh, a month and a half or so ago, a couple of months ago, and I, I came for one day and it was amazing. He told this story. Um, he's this really high, happy guy, right? And he told this story about um, this fellow in, uh, in, his, in his area who had been paid by uh, communists or by in local insurgents who felt threatened by Ajahn Jamnian uh, and he was paid to spread propaganda, bad press about Ajahn Jamnian, right? And uh, he'd be on, uh, on a truck with a loudspeaker, right, <laughs> going through town and saying bad things about Ajahn Jamnian, right? And his Ajahn Jamnian's um, uh, his his monks and uh, and and students and were were very distressed. You know, this guy is spreading false words about you, and uh, and Ajahn Jamnian, you know, he didn't care all that much. But finally, he he met this guy, and this guy bowed down to him, and he and he he had a private audience with him, and he said, "Please forgive me. I feel so bad." I, I've been spreading these words about you. I've been paid to spread, to spread propaganda about you uh, because I'm very poor and it's the, the only way that I can send my daughter to school through the money that I'm getting to, uh, 
uh, to spread these rumors about you. And Ajahn Jamnian, you know, was was delighted to you know to hear, and uh, you know, and when when he'd hear about this, you know, he he'd say, uh, and he'd see this guy he'd say. Go ahead, are you doing your job, you know? <laughs> Do it well, you know. I said, what are you talking about? It's okay, you know, he's, he's got his job to do and I've got mine, you know. He was completely unruffled, because you know, he knew in his heart where he was coming from. It was, it was extraordinary, uh, and talking about it and laughing, and he'd see this guy, and at the end, his daughter went, finally completed uh, her graduation, and they had a celebration, and it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a big joke for him. To be that free, that's something to aspire to. But when you know who you are within yourself, then that blame and praise doesn't have that same effect. So um, I'll just close with, with this piece that I, I came across, um, and then we can have a discussion. This is called The Invitation. Have, has this been read here recently? by Oriah Mountain Dreamer, Indian Elder, and a lot of it, praise and blame, comes up. She says, It doesn't interest me what you do for a living. I want to know what you ache for, and if you dare of meeting your heart's longing. It doesn't interest me how old you are. I want to know if you will risk looking like a fool for love, for your dreams, for the adventure of being alive. It doesn't interest me what planets are squaring your moon. I want to know if you've touched the center of your own sorrow, if you've been opened by life's betrayals, or have become shriveled and closed from fear of further pain. I want to know if you can sit with pain, mine or your own, without moving to hide it, or fade it, or fix it. I want to know if you can be with joy, mine or your own, if you can dance with wildness and let ecstasy fill you to the tips of your fingers and toes without cautioning us to be careful, be realistic, or to remember the limitations of being human. It doesn't interest me if the story you're telling me is true. I want to know if you can disappoint another to be true to yourself, if you can bear the accusation of betrayal and not betray your own soul. I want to know if you can be faithful and therefore trustworthy. I want to know if you can see beauty even when it is not pretty every day and if you can source your life from God's presence. I want to know if you can live with failure yours and mine, and still stand on the edge of a lake and shout to the silver of the full moon, yes. It doesn't interest me to know where you live or how much money you have. I want to know if you can get up after the night of grief and despair, weary and bruised to the bone, and do what needs to be done for the children. It doesn't interest me to know who you are, how you came to be here, I want to know if you will stand in the center of the fire with me and not shrink back. It doesn't interest me where or what or with whom you have studied. I want to know what sustains you from the inside when all else falls away. I want to know if you can be alone with yourself 
and if you truly like the company you keep in the empty moments. Uh, it can make some copies in, in here. So, to be brave enough and courageous enough to just be yourself, that's the prescription for praise and blame. So, here, you uh, just, thanks, Aaron. Back there. Back there. Thanks. I often, I don't really understand, I mean on some really deep level, I really don't understand why I meditate and why I seek out other people who meditate. I, I don't really understand it. I do it because it's sort of built into my life, but I don't really understand it. And um, a friend of mine came down from Ukiah with her daughter because her daughter had to have some major surgery. And um, she stayed with friends. and. I had made a plan to meet her so that while her daughter was in surgery, she'd have somebody to be with so she wouldn't be so alone in the anxiety of the event. And um, we had a conversation. <laughs> and she told me where the surgery was going to take place, but I had had a previous idea of where I, th I thought it was going to be at UCSF. And so I went to USC UCSF and I inquired from all the people there about um, where this pediatric surgery could be, and they couldn't come up with, you know, where this was. And I was feeling very frustrated. And I had her cell phone number, and I tried it three or four times, but couldn't get through. And I was feeling the painfulness of having good intention and very bad execution. <laughs> and um, I was also very hungry. I hadn't eaten, so I went to lunch, and there, sitting next to me was clearly an two brothers, an older brother sort of watching out for his younger brother while something was happening in the hospital. And the younger brother went away probably to go to the bathroom. And in the meantime, the older brother started doing these sort of strange things on the table. And I looked at him, and all of a sudden it occurred to me that he was practicing his piano on the table. And I said to him, I couldn't help myself, I said, are you practicing piano? And he looked at me, and he sort of you know, startled, and he said, Yes, I'm doing my exercises. And I said, how really convenient that, you know, you can take this portable opportunity wherever you go. And he looked a little startled. And I felt for me this incredible pleasure of connection with complete stranger and appreciation. And then the mother came and collected the two children. And they were just about to take off and they were walking away. When I noticed, of course, that the younger boy, who was only like four, had left his jacket. So I said, wait, the jacket. So he looked startled, and they looked on the scene, they had left the jacket. And the older boy turned to me and said, thank you very much. And there was this sense in me which felt, even though I had not been able to be in touch with my friend, I had not been able to find her, I didn't know where it was. It turned out she was at a totally different hospital. And, you know, I was able to connect later in the day. But I had had, for me, in fact, what was for me this incredibly satisfying experience. I had gotten what I needed. Was, which was to make myself available mm -hmm. to what was really happening. Mm -hmm. you know, and this was what really was happening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what I had hoped to be able to do was not within my power mm -hmm. to do. But I was able to be present. Mm -hmm. And I was able to connect. And I was able, even for a brief moment, with a complete stranger, to have a meaningful interaction. Mm -hmm. And that possibility, 
I think is why I meditate. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I sort of uh, feel that it's it's tough to just be yourself in the world, and and not to be concerned really, um, or have this space I guess available to uh, not be concerned about approval. And uh, I guess in my experience, it seems that um, whenever I am trying to be myself. I'm met with disapproval and, and with uh, resistance, and it's not really, it doesn't seem quite welcoming. So I'm wondering, like, uh, I guess how to continue to try to be like that uh, in, in a world, I guess, that I don't feel it's very welcome. Hmm. Let me ask, when you're around uh, close friends or people who know you really well, <clears throat> are you yourself around them? Um, well, my experience, I think with my family, it wasn't really encouraged. Family might be a, a different story. So. <laughs> We're talking about friends here. Right. Well, I think that's, um, I think uh, not having that experience uh, from my original family, it's probably hindered that with my own choices as an adult. Uh -huh. Are there any relationships where you're, you're Truly, just yourself. Um, it seems like uh, when I'm involved with somebody romantically, that that's what I tr want to do, and then I realize that I'm not. It's not really accepting. So I'm obviously choosing people that um, will reflect to me that it's not okay to be myself. Mm -hmm. And and good friends outside of romantic relationships. Um, I still find myself limiting, uh, I, I just, I think, I guess, I, I choose people that, where I can't fully engage in that. Mm -hmm. Because I really don't feel 100% um, natural or, or being myself around uh, people in my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's and it is. It's hard for many of us to find find uh, ways and in, in situations where we can be ourselves. But I would say, I would guess there probably are times when you are just yourself, and it comes through. And uh, the more you can pay attention and be present for how that feels. Um, the more you are nourishing that. It is hard to be ourselves, but the alternative is trying to be somebody that we're not, which is, you know, a very <laughs> losing kind of situation. So you might take an experiment for just a period of, of time with certain people who you feel a bit safer and see what it's like to just, rather than looking outside, just get in touch with what's true for you right now and experiment for just short periods of time. Generally with our good friends or with people we feel really close to, 
that's one of the most magical aspects of a close friendship, that we don't have to be anything else than, than who we are. And often when we're with people who we'd like to be, Good evening, once again. Uh, so I'd like to um, talk with you a bit about enjoyment. I'm, I am planning to write another book. It's going to be The Secrets of Enlightened Eating. You know, it will be, do you want to eat what you want when you want to eat it? Why not? <laughs> And of course, the secret here, you know, since this is the secrets of enlightened eating, is knowing for sure, truly, deeply, what you really want, when you really want it. <laughs> Turns out it's not so simple. Um, I did want to say a bit more about the... Um, since I kind of left you with that story um, about the Zen teacher who asked his disciple, what are you doing? And the disciple said, I'm not doing anything. Teacher said, well, if you're not doing anything, you're just wasting your time. The disciple said, if I was doing something, that would be a waste of time. And the teacher said, so tell me about this not doing anything. And the disciple said, even a thousand sages could not describe it. This is a little different than the subject of enjoyment, so I thought I'd just mention this and then we'll go on to enjoyment. But, you know, usually our idea of how to do our life is have an idea, conceive of something, and then see if you can do what you just conceived. And then you go like, like you could conceive before you're going to meditate that I will calm my mind and body. I will have some bliss now, or I will, I will relax and let go of my stress. I will stop thinking. So you have this idea, and then you go and try to make it happen and do what you thought. Why would you want to impose that on reality or on you? Why would you want to coerce yourself into doing something you just happened to think for a moment or two? And then you try to make your body and mind conform to your thought, because you happen to have thought it. <laughs> or you heard, oh, that's the thing to do if you're going to be spiritual. There was another Zen teacher who said, realizing the mystery is nothing but breaking through to grab an ordinary life. Isn't that good? Nothing but breaking through to grab an ordinary life. So. 
why would you want to limit yourself to doing something or trying to do something that you just happen to think? Why not do the inconceivable? Which is what we do all the time, you know, except for when we get confused by dreaming up something to do and then trying to limit ourselves to doing what we just dreamed up. This is like thinking that you need a recipe, you see, to, for your life, you should have a recipe. Otherwise, so it'll turn out the way it should. If you have a recipe, if you have the good recipe, then it'll come out and you follow the recipe and you do what you're told, it will come out right. How well has it worked? <laughs> I don't know. I, I never found it worked very well. So instead of that, you could just kind of like pick up the, and look at all the ingredients that you have. You could open the refrigerator, go to the store. You could, you could look at things, smell things, taste things, touch things, and dream up what to do with them. And then if that wasn't working, you could dream up something else to do. And you could let things inspire you. Uh, so this is to believe finally, you know, to trust that you could do the inconceivable. Have an ordinary human life. <laughs> Rather than trying to be a Buddha. Or some kind of perfect being who always got it right. And was, you know, kind. Compassionate. <laughs> and then you try to get yourself to do that. <laughs> Get a grip. No. <laughs> anyway, uh, so this is somewhat related to enjoyment. So I want to remind you, first of all, that enjoyment in the Buddhist context is one of the five factors of absorption. So if you want to be concentrated or absorbed, you will need enjoyment. You can't do without it. Most of us try to concentrate or be absorbed by efforting. It's very hard to be concentrated and absorbed by efforting. So it's a lot easier if you're enjoying the object of your awareness or if you're enjoying the activity, then you get absorbed in it. And the effort involved is minimal. So mostly we try to muscle through meditation the way we try to muscle through the rest of our life. Oh well. <clears throat> Um, and also enjoyment is one of the seven wings of enlightenment can't do without it and what this enjoyment is um, is to let your heart connect with the object of awareness and let you let the sensation or the experience come home to your heart and you let your heart resonate Okay, so this is different than our usual idea of I better not let myself be touched because it could hurt. So rather than having any enjoyment, because as soon as there's the possibility of enjoyment, which is, in other words, connection, it's to connect with something. Now is connection going to be, is connection going to be something that tells you what to do? If you're connected, do you get told what to do? Or do you tell others what to do when you're connected? Is connection a support or is to be connected, do you experience it as a threat? Okay, so connection here, we're talking about the kind of connection where it's 
it's a support, there's a connection, and you feel support, and you resonate, and you're one with, you know. So to be one with, you connect at the level of your heart, with your heart, to the object, and you let your heart resonate. Or you could say, you let yourself be moved, you let yourself be touched. Okay? So, this is meditation. Can you let yourself be touched by you, your experience, your breath, your sensations, your thoughts, and be moved and touched, to touch and be touched? This is also known as intimacy, or for the Zen teacher, realizing the mystery. In Zen, sometimes enlightenment, intimacy, realizing the mystery, these are not different things, this is about connecting, to touch and be touched, to meet and be met, to see and be seen, to know and be known. Okay, so this is also about presence. In other words, to have any enjoyment in your life, you're going to have to show up and be present, right? How can you enjoy something when you're not letting anything touch you? How can you be nourished if you don't actually take something in? And trust yourself to sort out what is useful, you know, the nutritive essence, whether it's food or your experience or your breath or somebody you meet, and to trust that your body, your being can sort out the nutritive essence and then you'll let go of the rest. This is whether you're digesting food or you're digesting experience. So this uh, quality of enjoyment is the quality of connection, touching, being touched, and its presence, you know, that you're going to show up, showing up, you don't run, you don't hide. If you hide, how are you going to connect? You know, and, uh, and you don't run. You know, so, as I was, um, I don't remember now, but, you know, this, so this enjoyment, as I was saying at the beginning, you know, like, eating what you want when you want, this is not easy, right? <laughs> Only in a certain way, it's really easy. Right? Um, hmm. Um, but, in other words, it's necessary if you really want to have enjoyment in your life, and that's your wish or your intention, you know, then this requires, this will require for most of us, commitment. You know, commitment to meeting, being met, seeing, being seen, touching, being touched. You know, that's a commitment to do that. And you say, yes, that's what I want. And I want it with my heart. That's what my heart wants, that's what my being wants and longs for. So I'm going to go for it. And if there's pain involved, I will study that and I'll, you know, I'm going to see what to do about that, how to absorb that, how to be with that. 
if there's anger involved, I'm going to study that. I'm going to study how to connect with, you know, anger, mine or somebody else's. You know, how to meet things uh, in this kind of space. Meet and be met. See and be seen. By the way, that same Zen teacher um, who said, even a thousand sages couldn't say, if I was doing something, that would be a waste of time. Later, when he became a teacher, he was asked about, how do you practice then? How do you understand things? And he said, awkward in a hundred ways, clumsy in a thousand still, I go on. And this also then is related to this enjoyment you may not feel like you're very good at connecting, being met, meeting. You may feel like you hide a lot or you're scared or you're frightened or you get angry. Uh, you feel threatened easily as soon as there's connection. You may feel, you may notice various things. So what is your aim? You know, so you come back to your aim and you keep aiming for connection, for, for enjoyment, true enjoyment, this resonating with your experience, that your heart resonates with your experience. And if you aim for that, awkward in a hundred ways, clumsy in a thousand, once in a while you'll hit the target. <laughs> but if you don't aim for it, then you just sort of sit there and like, why don't people give me more enjoyment and they should be taking care of me and they should be doing this for me and what's wrong with them anyway and they're always this and they're always that and darn it anyway and I know, I did it for years. I was waiting for all of you to, to crack me open, you know. Like Rilke says, you know, you're inside the rock waiting for somebody to crack it open. Why not break through to grab an ordinary life? <laughs> All right, so enjoyment. So now this enjoyment, obviously, you're going to have to distinguish, You'd, you know, and this is scary. You know, you can already understand how it's scary because we're talking about connection and true meeting. Oh, and I did want to tell you a little aside here about this enjoyment and this being present. Um, I don't know if you heard it, but a while back Terry Gross was interviewing this fellow who, who was talking mostly about the genetics of marijuana plants and how, of course, since the big crackdown, whenever it was Camp and Regan or Bush or somebody had the huge crackdown, and since then, you know, the people who grow marijuana have, have been, they've been working and busy. And so now, before the crackdown, THC, the active ingredient in marijuana, was 3% of the plant. Now it's 20%. You know, and the plants grow in six weeks instead of three or four months. Uh, and they mature in artificial light instead of outdoors. And they need way less water. Uh, and the buds are a hundred times more prolific, or whatever, you know. So, so much for the crackdown, right? Well, <laughs> but the thing that was really interesting to me finally was that they've actually, apparently scientists have now identified the, the natural analog for THC, what the body naturally produces. 
you know, that we're naturally producing something like THC. It's not serotonin, it's not endorphins, this is not by exercising, you know, whatever. This is that your body produces this when you practice being present. <laughs> so it would be no wonder if you sat here focused on being present and enjoying that after a while you might get stoned. <laughs> So this is not far-fetched, this is now scientific. <laughs> you know, that you could sit here and, and bliss out and, you know, and worry less and, you know, that you, would start, you wouldn't be worried so much about various things and, you know, etc. Anyway, it's a thought. <sighs> By the way, you know, this is not just a Buddhist concept. William Blake said, All of creation will appear infinite and holy, whereas now it appears finite and so corrupt. This will come about by an improvement of sensual enjoyment. But first we will have to lay to rest the idea that people have bodies separate from their consciousness. When the doors of perceptions, when the doors of perception are cleansed, everything will appear as it is. Does that sound like a Buddhist concept? You know, as it is, comma, infinite. <laughs> So there is a quality about this connecting and resonating. Whatever it is, that infin the, what, you know, the sense of infinite is there. So this is in taste, touch, sensing, pain, pleasure. There's the possibility of enjoyment. And the Zen teacher Dogen says, even your thinking, you know, was nothing but enlightenment. But you thought and you said, this thinking can't be enlightenment. You were looking somewhere else for enlightenment, so you thought and you said, this thinking can't be enlightenment. So who said that? Dogen didn't say that. You just made it up. Because you said that. So you decided, oh, this thinking can't be infinite. But actually you're thinking you know, the sense of what thinking is can go out infinitely. Now I'd like to take, um, you know, a few minutes to, dis you know, differentiate enjoyment and, you know, some other reasons why we, I've already suggested a few, why we sort of shy away from enjoyment, and that is that enjoyment seems really close to greed, lust, excitement, you know, some other things that might be a problem. <laughs> Although, boy, are they delicious sometimes, right? Or they, it seems like they're delicious, you know, for a few moments before the water gets too hot and you turn into a red lobster. Um,
I'm sorry, I thought of something else there, and now it's lost, and now it's, oh darn it, I didn't get to tell you that one, oh well. Um, but um, excitement to me is, some, is where you, instead of actually relating with the object, you use the object and take in the object in order to go into this sort of excitement. This where you're not actually connected with the object at a heart level, you're consuming it, you're taking it in, you're using it to keep the excitement going. So if you eat fast enough, for instance, I was talking with a friend of mine the other day, and he said, one of the problems we have with eating, for instance, is uh, we eat too fast. And part of the eating so fast is you could go right into excitement. And then you wouldn't have to have all the other stuff. You could just have the excitement, and that would cover everything else. The possibility of, you know, life, birth, you know, that there's death and life and pain and pleasure and joy and sorrow, and you could just go, the heck with it. I'm going for And you could, in that sense, you know, if you eat fast enough and enough, you could eat yourself right into oblivion and not have to experience or be present for anything. Thank you very much for this possibility in my life, you know. So enjoyment is not about eating fast and quickly and excitedly until you reach oblivion. This is not enjoyment. This is excitement and aiming for oblivion where you don't have to experience or connect with anything. So if that's what you're interested in, by all means, you know, up to a point. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to be one of the objects of your usage for, you know, going to that oblivion state. But if it's just chocolate or ice cream that you do until oblivion, and that's your aim in life. But, you know, so the question is, what's your intention or aim, right? So, but anyway, excitement. And then I also differentiate enjoyment from... Uh, greed or lust, which is, I'm not really having any satisfaction from this object, but, and because I'm not having any satisfaction, I need, but it seems like there must be some satisfaction right there if I could just get more of it. In order to get more of it, I need to get rid of what I have. So you keep trying to get more of what you're not really experiencing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's greed, and that seems fun sometimes, but <laughs> James Perez described it one time as his son having a strawberry in his mouth, a strawberry in each hand, and crying for more strawberries. <laughs> because he'd taken away the bowl. And James said, you could see the strawberry in his mouth. <laughs> but rather than tasting that strawberry, and the, the one in this hand, and then the one in... No, it's like more. So it's not experiencing what you have, and then but wanting more of it. And that's some, somehow inherently, you know, not very satisfying. But, you know, again, it seems like... It's, it's intense enough that it seems like, like you could... <laughs> If you just went for it, you know, strongly enough, you could get it. 
Uh, and I heard about the instinctual food movement, by the way, that, and, but they say, you know, that you can't do instinctual eating by, with manufactured products. I noticed this um, now and again, but for instance, potato chips or Oreo cookies. I had some Oreo cookies the other day. I was at a friend's and here were these Oreo cookies, so I ate one. And it's just not satisfying. It's not satisfying, but it seems like it ought to be. So you eat another one. <laughs> and and you can just keep eating these things that aren't really enjoyable and aren't really satisfying because, well, where is it? It should be there. <laughs> so it throws off your, you know, it, it right away throws off your, your capacity for enjoyment. You know, and the enjoyment isn't there, but it seems like it should be. So, and then you never, and then it's not like you feel satisfied. And eventually, you sort of like you feel kind of nauseous and like you don't really feel like experiencing anything. And then, you know, now you're home. <sighs> anyway, so this is about, you know, so again, you know, if, and then to do it, so to have enjoyment, you know, this is, this is commit, there's a commitment here and there's like, there's distinguishing enjoyment from other emotional aspects, you know, other emotions, that to actually connect, there's this actually connecting, actually meeting, actually experiencing, actually tasting, touching, knowing, being known, okay? So that's enjoyment. I don't think that happens with excitement. I think you're, we use the object with greed. We try to get rid of the object we have so that we can get more of it without experiencing it. <laughs> it's very exciting, but it's not very enjoyable, finally. Boy, is that intense, though. <laughs> so we get confusions here about what actually is what. You know. So again, when you aim for enjoyment, aim for enjoyment, and aim again if you miss it. Now, the other thing here is, I recently wrote a um, column, it'll be out in a few months, for the Yoga Journal, they have a column called Eating Wisely. So my column is, if you want to eat wisely, the unacknowledged key to eating wisely is enjoyment. Now, if you think about this, all right, people usually think that eating wisely would be you make wise choices about your food and you follow those wise choices and those are the things you eat. Now, how wise could that be? You give up your capacity to taste or sense or know for yourself, to discover, to experience, to, to be interested in this or that. Your capacity to play, to, to, you know, to, to observe, to notice, and to discover and realize. And, you, know, you give up all of that and you say, huh, I have no capacity for any of this. I just better do what I'm told. Somebody else somewhere, they figured out the wise choices to make. It's a vegan diet, obviously. <laughs> you better not be having any dairy or eggs, or, and this is the best diet, or whatever it is. You know, it's no fat, no dairy, or it's no fat, no meat. Um, as Julia Child says, you know, 
um, when she's whipping up the mashed potatoes and she's putting in the butter and she says, Oh, I hear that, that some of you are not eating butter anymore. Well, you can always mm, substitute well some, mm, some whipped cream. Now, I find several things about, so, you know, and then, you know, so when, when we get the idea that somebody else has these wise choices and they've figured out what the wise things are, and then we try to follow that, you know, how wise is that? Oh, well, it's a good way to keep yourself a child, you know, doing what you're told by the expert adults out there who have figured these things out. Just do what you're told while pretending that you're making wise choices and you're so grown up. <laughs> when really you're just spending your time doing what you're told or rebelling against it and then saying, oh, I'm so bad. I still am eating chocolate cake. And it's so bad because I'm not doing the wise choices that I was told, you know, to follow. So I don't see where this is wise. This is just doing what you're told. This is just allowing somebody's idea out there somewhere. And then you take that idea. And now I'm going to coerce myself into following this wise choices and doing this wise thing. How wise is that to take some idea someplace and try to coerce yourself into following it? To me, that's not very wise. You've sacrificed your capacity to enjoy, your capacity to discover, your capacity to have an interest to, you know, to discover things, to realize things, to experience things, to know for yourself, to expand, you know, to have an improvement of your sensual enjoyment, find the all of creation infinite and holy. You've sacrificed that so you can do the right thing. And, you know, and then who's going to thank you for it anyway? And then you just make yourself small, you know, oh, I can't do it, oh, I should do it. You make yourself small and like a child, and then even if you can do it, do you feel good? Even if you can do it, you're like, oh, I feel great. I just, I just don't have any interest in anything. Or, you know, like, <laughs> or, you know, then you just come up with something else to coerce yourself with. You know, if you, if that one, if you got yourself to coerce to that, you can just, you can regulate your whole life. You know, and do the right things, you know, the, make the right choices, the wise choices. You can do all these things. So you don't end up feeling like, you know, large, expansive, you know, buoyant, happy. You feel like you've got to do the next thing. I have a friend who, who you know, is a personal trainer, so she, women come to her and say, could I, I need a program for some muscle tone, and she says, and what have you been eating? Oh, I'm on the McDougal diet. You know, I have no, no fat, no meat, no avocado. And oh, and you don't think that has anything to do with it? Oh, no, no, I feel great. And then she'll say, yes, and you have no muscle tone. Well, get some meat on your bones, and then let's talk about muscle tone. <laughs> you know, like get some mass. 
some stuff, you know, and then we'll work with it. But we're all into this, you know, this is America. This is America. This is an anti-pleasure, you know, coercive domination culture where we're going to tell you what to do. And this is science. And by golly, you know, if you study for yourself what is enjoyable, what is not enjoyable, what is pleasure, what is not pleasure, you know, what is interesting, what is not interesting, what is, you know, what you're discovering, what is, you know, what you're not noticing, when you do all of this, you know, that's, you know, that's science. What do you think scientists are supposed to be doing? They're supposed to be observing what's what. But, you know, we don't call that science, but all of that science that you could be doing is otherwise known as enjoyment. But it's not what scientists call science because it's not repeatable, and we don't allow enjoyment or consciousness, you know, in our vocabulary. And besides that, you know, it, whatever you figure out, it's just anecdotal. <laughs> and it's not going to help us sell things to other people that have been disempowered and want to make wise choices and, you know, need us to fix them when something goes wrong and now we're going to sell them something that's going to fix them because this is scientific. You need to buy it. And all these, you know, with drugs that have all these side effects, they're not side effects, you know. There are other effects. <laughs> so you could actually, like, own your life. You could actually have your life. You could actually sense, smell, taste, touch, see, you know, delight, enjoy pleasure, you could, you could know and find out for yourself what's what, rather than thinking all these choices are made somewhere else by somebody else that I need to follow because what do I know about how to eat, or how to live, or how to be, or how to think, or how to feel? What do I know about any of that? You know, and is there some way to get it right? You know, whose recipe do I follow in order to get it right? Be the kind of person I should be. So this is about coming back home, you know, and that you could, to your heart, it's your own heart, you know, and that you could learn to live from your heart and with your heart, knowing your heart, trusting your capacity to find or aim for, you know, enjoyment. Enjoying, meeting, connecting, and how to have real connection in your life. And connection is where there's sustenance, there's source, there's the infinite, there's nourishment, you know, there's intimacy. Where's, it's where everything is. When we're not you know, maintaining our disconnected, uh, disembodied you know, state of a mind that's somewhere at the you know, consciousness that's somewhere around the, oh, the top of the neck. <laughs> Doesn't really have a body. And then likes to decide, you need to not eat any fat. <laughs> then you try to tell that, but why, why wouldn't you let your body figure out something? 
you could liberate your body to enjoy what it, you know, Mary Oliver says that, you know, let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. This is not just Buddhist. So, in fact, then, you know, to have wisdom, to have any wisdom, or wisdom in the Buddhist sense is the capacity to discriminate this from that, what's enjoyable, what's not enjoyable, what's pleasurable, what's not pleasurable, what's kindness, what's not kindness, you know, what do I want, what do I not want, and, how, and to actually be able to notice and, and what your body, what your being truly longs for, what it, you know, doesn't long for, you know. Could you study that and know that? So wisdom is this capacity to discriminate, and wisdom is based on it's actually a very scientific sort of idea. Wisdom must be based on that capacity to discriminate, must be based on being open-minded, receptive, studying, investigating, observing, noticing, and then with that open-mindedness and experiencing things, you could know and decide and be able to discriminate for yourself. And it's and our usual idea of wisdom, which you know, eating wisely, sort of implies that you know that there's a a plan somewhere. These are the wise choices that you could make. More fiber. <laughs> you know, less fat. Um, here are these wise choices that you could make. The, you know, in order if you stick to something like that, that is the antithesis of wisdom, because wisdom does not stick to something, not even the truth, because if you stuck to it, now you've limited your capacity to investigate, be open-minded, and find out what's what, because you're busy sticking to something that you think is the thing to do. It's the wise choice to make. So I'm going to stick to it. I don't care what other people are doing. I'm not open to it. I already know. I've got it right. So, when we're talking about enjoyment here, we're not talking about you would never be open to what somebody else suggests. You could try out any number of, of plans and you could see for yourself. You know, um, you know, you could try eating five times a day for a week or, you know, you can try different things. And you're studying, does it work? Does it not work? And actually, you know, there was a wonderful letter in the Sun magazine last October. A woman said, you know, here there is in America, this is a, whatever it is, $30 billion a year industry, you know, to help people lose weight or to, you know, these various programs and products and what have you, right? So how many studies have been done about people who have lost weight and kept it off? Nobody does those studies because... <laughs> When, did, when was the last time it worked? <laughs> so this woman and her associate decided they would study 
people who had lost weight and kept it off for five years or more, 25 pounds or more and kept it off for five years or more, what did they do? How did they do it? So she found out that they had one thing in common. <laughs> Isn't this great? They had one thing in common. They each figured out for themselves how to do it. <laughs> she wrote a book about it. <laughs> about how all these people figured it out for themselves. She can't get a publisher. <laughs> She'd been turned down by 13 New York publishers who said, write a book about dieting. Nobody's going to buy a book about, uh, nobody's going to buy a book that says you need to figure this out for yourself. Because <laughs> people want to be told what to do the right thing to do, the best thing to do, the only thing to do, the thing that's going to work, the thing that's going to make all your difference, and you just need to follow my plan and do what I say, and you'll be fine. And do you think that if you try to do that, you're not going to feel like, after a while, like a little resentful? <laughs> Damn it, I've just been doing, you know, everything I can to please these people and to do what I'm told, and you know, and, you know, what do they care about me, and are they interested in me, and I, you know, and you get resentful, you get, you know, angry, you're sad, and you're also feeling resentful because, like, somebody took away all your choice, all your capacity to choose. Somebody took that away from you. Who did that? You gave it up. You gave it over to the plan. You said, I have no capacity to choose. I'm not going to choose. And of course, you feel later, you feel resentful. I have no choice. And then, and then you're, and then something in you that longs for pleasure goes, ha, I have a chance. She's a little tired. He's a little upset. <laughs> He's distracted. I'm going for it. Woom. <laughs> <laughs> this is the way our life works. So we keep trying to do these plans. You see, this is where it's related to if you, if you aren't doing anything, you're wasting your time. No, if I was doing something, if I had some plan in mind that I was regulating with myself, I would, that would be a waste of time. That would be how to waste time, because I would have a plan, I would tell myself, I need to this, I shouldn't that, I have to this, I can't that, and then after a while, something in me sneaks out, you know, for the goodies, you know, and, or it sneaks out to be angry, and then it says, you know, I'm so mad at you, when actually I'm mad at myself for having given up my choice, you know, and disempowered myself. That could really make you mad. It makes me mad when I disempower myself. And then I like to, you know, you know, then you turn it on others. But the anger is finally like, I disempowered myself. I said I have no choice. And it's the same thing, you know, with feelings. You know, when you say, your depression makes me so angry. <laughs> oh, you had no choice about what to feel. No, your depression makes me angry. I have no you know, I'm not responsible for that at all. It's all up to you. Your behavior determines my feelings. You know, your feelings determine my feelings, so you need to shape up your feelings. <laughs> you need to get them together there so that I feel better. Now, 
if I disempowered myself that way, and I say, you make me this, you make me that, you, you know, I'm a complete victim of the universe, you think I'm going to be happy? I'm angry that I'm so disempowered, and I have no choice, and I'm completely a victim of everything, and I can't say anything, and I can't do anything, and I have no impact, and I have no choice, and I have no capacity, and, you know, nothing. I'm just, you know, at the mercy of life. So, you know, Buddhism is very radical, it's, but, you know, on the other hand, it's just like, grow up. <laughs> but, you know, that's radical. Really growing up is radical. That would mean you would study for yourself and know for yourself what to do and make choices and not just try to do the wise thing that somebody else figured out and impose that on yourself so that you could remain a child doing what you're told, which is the best thing. And you, to take responsibility for your choices means you could make a good choice, a bad choice, but you take responsibility for your choices. And you could choose, you could make another choice then. Doing this plan didn't work. Doing that plan doesn't work. I'm going to figure it out for myself. We all have that capacity. Why would we give it away? Why would we abandon ourselves? Well, it's to get it right. You know, it's to be good. So, realizing the mystery is nothing but breaking through to grab an ordinary life. Or the other Zen, another Zen teacher, is it time for me to stop? I see some people getting up and walking out, you know. Thinking, well, maybe it's time to stop. Mm. Um, but another uh, Zen, another Zen teacher... <laughs> Yeah, I could make my own decision, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but it's nice to have your support, you see? You know, see how helpful this is? Somebody gives you permission. Somebody gives you permission to make your own choice, you know, to know, to choose for yourself. So I give you permission. I'm going to, you know, if you want to leave, leave. <laughs> <laughs> Don't blame it on me. Um, <clears throat> I was about finished anyway. I sure had a nice time in that meditation that we did together. You know, you know. Did you have it? You know, how was the meditation for you? I had a great time. Yeah. I did something I don't usually do. You know, I actually, and it was debatable because you know I was encouraging you to enjoy yourself, and then I thought, and then you know what I was doing for enjoyment was something I don't usually do in meditation, but so I I I I started dreaming up things to do in meditation that I had never done before. So, so the first thing I did was, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to let myself be touched by your blessedness. The blessedness of each of you in this room. I'm going to let the blessedness of each of you touch me and, and support me and nourish me. I'm going to let that 
come in. And we each have that inner blessedness. And you and often we're put off, of course, by it's tucked away, that blessedness. And we don't often show it, you know, to one another. <coughs> but I decided whether you are conscious of it or not, I'll let your blessedness <coughs> come to me, touch me. So that was really nice. And then I thought, why don't we go, why don't we take this blessedness and we'll go to a place where we have choice and it's very still and very quiet where we can choose. So I went there <laughs> and I assume, I was assuming that you are all coming along with me <laughs> since I had already connected with you, you know. So I thought, let's go to this stillness and quiet. And then, and then I decided to go to, oh, to deepen that. I thought that would, you know, this is all for my enjoyment. <laughs> um, so I thought we could deepen that and and go to where it's even more still and more quiet and where we know our blessedness and we have that kind of we're kind of there's a kind of humming you know in that stillness sometimes it sounded like the vents but <laughs> and then i thought oh tonight tonight why don't we do the the jewel mirror samadhi I don't even know what the jewel mirror samadhi is, but it, it sounds so nice. Because the jewel mirror, you know, it seems like seeing and being seen, you know, knowing and being known, connecting, and a kind of clarity and a kind of clarity and and brilliance to the jewel mirror samadhi which is also our nature, you know, and our capacity to reflect. So I thought, oh, let's go there. Let's visit. <laughs> and after we'd been in the Jewel Mirror Samadhi for a while, I thought, well, why don't we go to vastness? We'll just, we'll just all go to, to vastness. Let's, let's just all be vast and and each of us can include be vast enough to include everybody else in the room so i was doing that you know i don't know what you were up to but <laughs> <laughs> but that was very enjoyable for me so you know thank you <laughs> for that <laughs> Oh, I started to tell you then about the Zen teacher who said, um, see with your eyes, smell with your nose, taste with your tongue. Nothing in the universe is hidden. Nothing is hidden. What else would you have me say? Nothing in the universe is hidden. And what else we'd have him say is, how do I get it right? 
you know, how can I have, you know, a better conception of what to do? But this is shifting to, you know, go ahead. This is inconceivable. What to do is inconceivable. You know, I was doing, some of you, apparently Nina Weiss was just here recently. I did a, uh, a workshop with her six weeks one time. And one of the first things I did, uh, we were doing a, a minute or two of just movements. So I did a lot of movements, you know, for a minute or two. And then she says, okay, thank you. And that was nice. And, and would you like some feedback? And, you know, uh-huh. she said, well, that was nice. But, you know, it, it seemed like everything you did had some meaning. She said, did you want to limit yourself just to doing things that had meaning? (laughs) So mostly, you know, we're always limiting ourselves. Rather than like, you know, actually meeting, actually seeing with our eyes, smelling with our nose, tasting with our tongue, feeling our feelings, thinking our thoughts, you know, being present and showing up and connecting then with the object. That's enjoyment, connecting, resonating with. And mostly we're busy doing, you know, something other than that. And you wouldn't have to limit yourself to what's meaningful or, you know, important. Suzuki Roshi, in one of his lectures, um, he said, um, Zen, you know, some of you think that in Zen, if it's Zen, you know, you'd have to draw a perfectly, a perfect line you know, with power and integrity, and you could learn to do that. But he said, Zen is just to draw a line, any line. The way a child draws a line, you know, enjoying it. And he says, if you're not ready to draw a line, any line, and just to play like that, you're not ready to practice Zen. I don't know, you know, at the time I missed that. (laughs) So now I read it in the transcripts years later, you know. Oh, (laughs) that's what he was trying to tell us. Um, do you know the, um, um, uh, I like the poem by, um, now I can't remember his name, it's Walcott, Derek Walcott. Do you know the poem, um, uh, One day you will with elation greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror. Each will smile at the other's greeting saying, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give back your heart.
to yourself, to the stranger who's loved you all your life, whom you've ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the photographs, the desperate notes, peel your image back from the mirror and sit and feast, feast on your life. Thank you for being here this evening. Wish you all, um, you know, many blessings uh, in your life. Let your heart come home to your heart. Thank you. Oh, could we do a? Uh, I love to do with you. This is a great group, but you know, ho, ho, and you just. You, you let this resonate for a while. I'm going to hit the bell and then we'll do it for like a minute. And you just, whatever, you let the sound of the room, you know, resonate through your being, you know, so your whole body resonates with the sound of ho. And then you make the sound and join into the sound. So we'll all blend into ho. And then you can share this, whatever it is, the blessing of this sound or the forgiveness or the warmth or compassion with whoever you'd like, with yourself, and then people in the room, people outside the room, wherever. Mm. Before you go, we have a couple of quick announcements. I know that a lot of people here are new tonight. Just wanted to remind you that the back table has flyers and information that you can check out. And please help stack the chairs. No more than five high. If you could take your chairs to the backs of the room and stack them. Thank you so much. I'd also like to mention that I some of you have asked, you know, what events I do, and there's a few flyers at the left-hand end of the table in the back. 
It's okay. I'm going to be here. Don't worry. Oh, um, what is the name of that poem? Um, love After Love. Yeah, it's, um, I can send you a copy if you know, I can email you a copy if you, oh, if you have an email. You once sent me the little duck years ago. The little duck, well, yeah. yeah this is so it. I know you'll really do it. I'm yeah. so impressed when it actually came. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.